welcome to Never Too Late. The podcast is dedicated to sharing the stories of people just like you and me who prove that no matter what you face and whatever obstacles you have to overcome, it is never too late. Joining me today is Dr. Russ Ellis from Berkeley, California, an architecture and sociology professor, painter, sculptor, and now singer, songwriter. A longtime creative, Dr. Ellis is proving that no matter where you are in life, there is no dream too large or small to achieve. Thank you for making the time to speak to us, Dr. Ellis. From what I've read about you, you have an incredible story, an architecture professor, then vice chancellor at UC Berkeley. You were recently featured in the New York Times Never Too Late series for recording your first album at 85 years old. From teaching at UC Berkeley to becoming vice chancellor, and most recently your album, Songs from the Garden, we can't wait to learn more about you and your journey here. So why don't you start by telling us more about your background and where you came from? Where am I from? Okay, to <laughs> your background and where you came from. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Uh, I was born at um, L.A. County Hospital in June of 1935 and um, lived most of my life in Southern California. During the Second World War, I lived, my, I had a rough childhood. My family kind of fell apart. My father got drafted. Um, and I went to live with a couple on a farm in Fontana, California. And I lived there from about six to 12. And that was an important part of my life. I learned a lot about animals and nature. Uh, it was really a, a formative part of my life. And um, then wandered, uh, my dad got back. He was wounded in the war. He got back and I went to stay with him in LA and my stepmother, who was from the Bronx, and um, oh, my ex-wife is from the Bronx. Got, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, then um, I, I can cut this short. In my, uh, I was always small, and I remember crying on my daddy's at my daddy's feet, saying, "Will I ever grow?" And he assured me that I would, and I did. And I'd always been fast, but then I got really fast. And before I knew it, I went to Compton High School when I came back to L.A. And before I knew it, I had a scholarship to UCLA and uh, was part of their very first NCAA track and field championship in 1956. Stayed on, and uh, I wasn't a very good student. I would go on probation uh, during the track season and then get off academic probation in the uh, in the off season because I had time to study and I wasn't pooped from working out all the time. And um, then uh, I got a job after I graduated and I was getting bored of my bachelor life and I met a woman uh, on a Fulbright in sociology from England and we got married. Ultimately, we hooked up. We didn't get married for a while. And um, then got my PhD, went back to graduate school. I did have, I want to alert you that I did, I've always had music in my life. And I've always had a musical aspiration kind of in the background. I've really been busy about that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, went to graduate school. And a side story. Can I take a little time? It's a real quick side story. Absolutely. Um, yeah. When I was I was in graduate school, 
And um, I got a call from from folks asking me if I would perform in a musical. It was called Fly Blackbird. And it was a protest musical. It was in the 60s. And we'd come home from picketing Woolworth for civil rights you know, issues. And we'd use the same picketing signs in our show, Fly Blackbird. Well, that was a one act for a while, then a two act. I was in, I played the lead in both of those. And then it went to New York and it, it won an Obie on off Broadway in uh, New York. I didn't go with it, but I, I've always been into music. Um, and this is just to forewarn you that a lot of what I did ultimately is kind of not a surprise. And I'll tell you more later. Okay, so uh, it seems that you've had a great life so far, but what are some of the obstacles you've had to overcome to get to where you are today? Uh, you know, obvious one uh, was race. Uh, but I have to tell you that being black in America for me um, was a taken-for-granted obstacle. That, is, that was my life experience of being black. Now, I was black in California. I wasn't black in New York or in, uh, in uh, Mississippi. Uh, but I was always aware of my environment at an extra level of awareness. We all are on the lookout for dangers and so forth. But being black, you can be surprised by stuff that can happen to you that you don't expect from places you don't expect. Now, remember, I was born in 1935, so my pathway is a little different from, say, yours or younger folks. But uh, race was important. Um, I was shy at a certain point in my life, and I actually understood that my shyness was an obstacle. I was watching people who weren't shy, and so I decided not to be shy, <laughs> and, and that worked. That's great that you're able to do that. A lot of people want to do that, and they're not able to do it. I yeah. know it can it can be debilitating. I know, you know, and a and in fact, well, but in fact, there are dangers when you're not shy. I mean, you you say things aggressively, and which people can misunderstand. Uh, well, you I seem mean, to you have know, a pretty good act- filter. Yeah. <laughs> so you haven't yeah you haven't said anything that you you regret so far. So I would imagine oh, that, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do have a filter. Okay, well, you okay. know, I'm 86. I know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, you develop you develop I, filters. Or yeah, just anyway, the opposite. So, when you get to as you get to be older, you get you know you get to say, you know you have less barriers and you, th- you say whatever comes to your mind. I find that with, with a lot of you know uh, what I, I figured I figured out what that is. You know, yeah. some people say that old folks you know get rigid, and uh, I don't think that's the case. I think that as you get older, if I'm any example, you've just decided what you have time for and what you don't have time correct. for. Yeah. You know. You know that, that's you really it. Like you're not gonna, you're not going to waste your time. Like I don't waste my time with anybody without a sense of humor at age 86. Okay, that's beautiful. You know, that's I mean, great. it sounds simple, but it's just a it's, it's a very, filter. It's it is a a great. Filter. Well, have you been yeah. a natural creative all your life? Uh, 
that's a hard question to answer. But I would answer it yes. Okay. Uh, I have always engaged the environment and tried to make it do things. <laughs> okay. Okay. That would be my summary. Yes. I don't take the environment for granted. And you, um, and you always thought out of the box. Well, it looks like it. Um, I do recall when I was in junior high school, someone said to me, you know, Russ, I ask you, how to, what's the best route to get to the grocery store? And what you say is, well, you know, I've been thinking about that. And, and, and evidently, yeah. in my conversation, I'd go off on trips around a simple question like, how do you get to the grocery store? I think I've made, I think maybe verbally, conceptually, intellectually, I've been inventive. I, okay. I wander and I get lost a little bit, you know, especially yeah. as I get older, because I still have the habit of wandering, but I have difficulty getting back. <laughs> okay, I got you. Okay, what is the most important okay. lesson you've learned over your career? Well, there isn't one, and they change as you get older. I'd say a, a, a real important one is be sure to listen to other people and not to decide what they mean and overreact or react prematurely, but kind of feel them out, hear them, listen to them. But I've spent an awful lot of time in my life with people. I mean, I don't dig tunnels, you know what I mean? Gotcha. And um, and it, especially my role as vice chancellor, that was one of, I wrote that on my whiteboard and I left it up the, the whole five years I was vice chancellor. The big word, listen. listen. And boy, did that serve me well. That's, yeah. a, that's a great lesson to teach, yeah. How did you come yeah. up with the remix challenge for everyone unaware the Um Chigal Remix Challenge was an initiative to get young people to vote by inserting their own poetry, lyrics, and even rappers over the track songs of the garden. Yeah, well, some of it has to do with uh, my, the, Eric Din, the, the guy who got me onto his label, Berkeley Cat Records. Mm -hmm. uh, he's kind of open uh, to experimentation. And I, I got to say, I'm glad you, noticed, you guys noticed that remix um, so I had this experience with my, uh, Brazilian housekeepers that have been really friends for years and that, you know, the story of the assistant, and yes. all. but that opened the door to music again in me. It, it opened the door. It was like I was visited by this muse. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. A different image, but I, I think of it more as a door that opened onto stuff. And, um, so, uh, and then I'm right in the middle, and I do a silly thing with Al Marshall. It's called Chickading, and uh, listen to it sometimes. Uh -huh. And also see the see the video if you can. Um, so, uh, and then I had for some reason this umchaga thing came into my mind. Now you have to remember, both of my children are musicians. I live in a town, Berkeley, California, that had Berkeley High Jazz Band, had music in the school, mm -hmm. has Casadero Music Camp. 
I mean, this town has been so full of music for so long. So in my family culture, we were all about music. So, uh, so I'm moving along and I'm getting close to having about 10 tunes. And I put the first one up. My granddaughter put it up on uh, YouTube for me. And then in writing the credits, my son, Dave Ellis, wrote, from the album, <laughs> Songs from the Garden, to be released next year. And I read that and I said, well, why not? <laughs> so that's the happenstance. My son wrote this thing. I see this on YouTube. And I said, yeah, okay, let's do an album. And then Eric uh, Den at uh, Berkeley Cat Records is just super cooperative. But I also have known Eric and everybody else on the album just before they were born and Casadero, the Berkeley schools around town. So it's all kind of, it kind of flows. It kind of flowed. And the door opened, and it's not like I chose this. And maybe about a year later, the door closed. And I'm really glad I had the experience. I've never had that experience of stuff kind of writing itself. And, you know, that's the value of just uh, living a while, I guess. <laughs> New things happen to you. That's great because I, I had the question to myself. It's like, how did you? I, I saw how you came up with the first song, and I now I understand why this prompted you to, to create the create a full album. You also mentioned okay. in your article okay. that you were used to being in the spotlight, being a professor and college track star. How is this spotlight different, and what have you learned from the experience? Well, that one is very much an age-related response I have to give you. Um, of course, it is quite something to be featured in an article in the New York Times. Uh, it is an event. Mm -hmm. And people notice. I have been surprised by the friends that I used to know 911 years ago who read the article and had contacted me, uh, <laughs> the sales of my album went up quite a bit <laughs> when the article came out. But my goal in life at this point is not to be in showbiz. If this had happened to me when I was, you know, 25 or 30 or something like that, um, if, if I'd had some decent advice, someone probably would have explained to me how to take advantage of this public notice. Mm -hmm. But I am. there's nothing I want from it. I'm enjoying the reaction. I'm enjoying talking to you. And I'm hoping that our conversation will be helpful so, to somebody else out there. And I know that's what you're doing. But there's nothing I want from it. So that makes it much more enjoyable when I recall me as an ambitious person. Okay. You know, earlier in my life, I'm kind of glad it didn't happen to me. Okay. I did want to be in theater. I wanted specifically musical theater. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a little lightweight uh, musical career in L.A. I had the obligatory mafia manager. And I even met Mickey Cohen so I could sing in his club. Except I was too young and I was sleepwalking. And I didn't know what I was doing. 
And that's good. I'm glad that happened. And I'm glad I wound up in academia. And I'm, I really liked the life that I had lived. But music has always been back there. So it always is pushing to, to reemerge. Um, and it ties my family together. My current wife, Julie Shear, is a songwriter. And this, we were just talking about this morning. We share that. She's going through a lot right now, with, mainly with her memory. But this really is such wonderful glue between us and our relationship. Oh, <laughs> so that's great. I, I probably wandered away from your question, but what the hell? It's okay. Don't worry about that. But what advice that's would you okay. give to anyone dealing with this kind of attention? Well, if you're ambitious and you happen upon this, and um, not to quote Andy Warhol and the 15 minutes, mm-hmm. I guess you want to find ways. You live in New York. You live in the heart of the finding ways to turn this kind of stuff into an advantage for the market or for attention or for the theater or something like that. Um, but uh, I think it depends what happens, what time in life it happens to you. Um, I'd say get help if you're ambitious and you have this kind of advantage. Find ways to take advantage of it. I don't know what they are. Okay. Uh, Your story in particular proves that it really is never too late to start any project. What is it in your life that made you trust yourself to continue to take on new projects, such as your move to teaching and then, of course, the musical album? Okay, I'm going to talk about the Aquarian Age and the Golden Sandbox, okay? Okay. Remind me if I get lost, okay? Uh, uh, first off, I'll talk about the Golden Sandbox. That's the, uh, that's the title of my oral history at the Bancroft here at UC Berkeley. And it is my summary of my life. I was born in California, and it's been... Well, that's what California has been for me. And I have been at play in California all my life. I mean, really, at play. Even through the tough times, California has been this little, this gigantic playpen. (laughs) And uh, so I've never kind of bitten down hard on anything, you know, other than the natural roles of husband, uh, son, uh, father, so forth. But, you know, I never was a vice chancellor. I did the job and I had the role and I wore the clothes, but I did not choose. It, it, It wasn't my identity. It was my job. And I had lots of different kinds of jobs in this golden sandbox and lots of different kinds of ways to play. I was a professor at a new women's college in Claremont, Pitcher College. Three years, my wife and I were both on the faculty. Fantastic, amazing time. Then I tried, I thought I was interested in experimental education and I was attracted to what was the, one of the wildest years of my life, SUNY Old Westbury, SUNY Cal. Boy, what in that time that was. That was so amazing. It was during the Vietnam era, the bombing of Cambodia. I think the students took over the campus three times in the one year I was there. 
uh, and it was exciting and interesting and impossible. There's no way that that was going to last. I know the, the university's there and it's functioning well, but I got to tell you, that was one wild year. Then I came back to California, and here's where the Aquarian Age comes in. Yeah. It didn't last very long, <laughs> yeah. but I want to let people know that that period, especially around the psychedelic, mm-hmm. loosened up many aspects of the society. And a lot of decision makers were influenced by the atmosphere of questioning the arts, questioning arts. And even corporate managers got a, got a sniff of this. And there was a lot of questioning of the boundaries between things. And I benefited from that. Okay. Uh, so when I, as a sociologist, go to UC Berkeley in the Department of Architecture, frankly, when I got my PhD just a couple of years ago, the field really didn't quite exist. And my going to Berkeley confirmed for lots of other schools that the social issues in architecture was something you should pay attention to, and the thing spread. But it was, and it's now subsided pretty dramatically in architecture. But I'm just describing to you a feeling of the times. The times felt fluid. They felt accessible for those able to take advantage of it. While I'm from a working class background, I've, I've never been hungry on purpose, you know, except, you know, my bohemian years. Um, I've never been cold, uh, truly cold. Uh, there are lots of things I've, I've never suffered. But um, anyway, okay. so what that's has the been answer the, to your question. Okay, so what has been the greatest resource in figuring out all these different avenues? My family and my friends. Great to hear. Um, yeah, yeah. I have uh, I have two great buddies that I've known. Oh, three or four. My two best buddies, Felton Henderson and Troy Duster, I've known since the 50s. And we are getting old together. And I think we're, I think we're lasting into our 80s. They're both black also. I think we're lasting into our 80s because we have each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, and, and my family, my, my, my kids are so supportive. So I'm a happy guy. And you know, when your kids and grandkids are doing okay, there's a lot of stress you're not under. Oh, by the way, let me just say that. Let me just say that. I think that's also a resource that was available to me. My kids, my children, David and Zoe, they've had complicated lives. They've settled out into this really nice place, I think. And I gotta tell you, that is such a relief That's to like, me as a dad. Trust <laughs> me, as a as a father and grandfather, I can attest to the fact that you're as happy as your least unhappy child. <laughs> that makes sense to me. <laughs> right. Okay. So, well, so that's I, a nice place. That's a great yeah, way. Go ahead. So, your most recent achievement may be your album, but what has seemed the greatest to you? reflected on my life and I like and respect the path that I've taken and I feel like 
I have been a successful person in my own terms. Uh, you asked me about the Um Chugga Challenge. I did tell you that the, the goal of getting this message down to younger people was to get them to vote. Well, thank you. Anyway, man. Okay, thank you so much for taking the time thank to talk with so us, much. Dr. Ellis. Your lifelong story is a great inspiration for entrepreneurship. You really prove that no matter what you wish to pursue and no matter what age, there are no obstacles too great to overcome. All your advice and expertise will surely help our listeners learn how to take control of their own lives. Although your career was not traditionally entrepreneurial, there is no doubt you carry a strong entrepreneurial spirit. We look forward to seeing whatever you choose to do next. We wish you and your family all the best and encourage everyone to go and listen to Songs from the Garden. To have accomplished this at the young age of 85, there's no one better to prove that it's never too late to start. Thanks again, Dr. Ellis, for coming on the show and sharing.